The Last Word with Matt Cooper. All right, you're welcome back. It is Friday's Last Word. Nathan Murphy in for Matt. 87 102 is the number for your WhatsApps. We'd like to get in touch for the week tw- trending. We have Ian Power in studio. How are you? Uh, Adele Coffey should be on the line as well. You there, Adele? I'm here. How are you? What was your response when you saw the British GQ talking about Barry Keoghan, our own Barry Keoghan, as born and bred a Dubliner as you will find, described him as one of our most exciting actors. That's British GQ describing Barry Keoghan as one of our most exciting actors. Yeah, it really just beggars belief. It's kind of like, how many times do you have to get it wrong before you will eventually get it right? Lots of times. (laughs) Yeah, why they keep doing it. I mean, there's there's so many funny instances of this where um, you know, obviously there there is a response every time from Irish people and often from the actors, artists, sports people, take your pick, who are being um, claimed as as British in in whatever situation it is. But there's so many funny ones. There's one... um, uh, oh, the one that most people will know is the Killian Murphy one. I think it was when he was publicising Inception and there's some... I, I, you have to feel sorry for the journalist who's saying, so you're both British. I think it was Tom Hardy who was with him and Killian Murphy says, no, Irish. And he says, yeah, like I said, British. And <laughs> Killian says, no, Irish. And then the journalist kind of says, so you're in the area of Northern Europe and Killian Murphy just says, Irish. <laughs> and it's just so amusing. But I, I don't know why they do it. Um it's got to be some sort of uh, cultural difference over there where in Britain, whatever they're teaching them in school suggests that Irish people still are part of the British Empire. If, if, is that still even a term? Probably is in certain parts of Britain, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. In, like, do we just need to get over ourselves here? I have, a, I have a text in, over the top reaction, 66 million people in Britain, they're not claiming Barry Keoghan, it's only just bad journalism at GC's part, call them out, not the whole British nation. It's no different to Irish press claiming anyone British with an Irish ancestor as being Irish, no matter how many generations or centuries back or how tenuous the link, you don't hear the British press saying, the Irish are at it again. Yeah, well, you see, I love that we get so angry about it and I love that we're always, you know, saying that, that they're never not at it, which The Independent used as their headline for this story this week, uh, which was the refrain from many people on X, formerly kind of known as Twitter. But having lived in London for a few years, I was absolutely shocked, really, I, I guess, kind of, but maybe not surprised at just li- how little kind of people in England seem to know about Ireland and Irish history. Like, they just assumed mm. that the, the island was one country. They had no awareness of the 800 years etc. So to be honest I'm kind of not surprised when these things happen um, I know people you know, that, that, that text are kind of giving out that, that we should just get over it but um, I think there's just so many examples of it at this point that it's kind of funny that we, we, we take the mic every time it happens. Is there any possibility Adele that they were talking about the, the greater we, the greater hour, that he's of this world He's of the arts. I, well, he's not even of this world, I mean, because he's out of this world. So, so no, I don't think that's any kind of explanation. But I am I am a big fan of all different kinds of we's, like the priestly we and the royal we. Obviously, the priestly we, my husband and I discuss this a lot, the priestly we is, we should clean the kitchen. And that means you should clean the kitchen. <laughs> but anyway, that's getting off the point. Uh, interesting story this week, uh, survey around women's sport and... And the coverage and the interest levels around women's sport. And one of the numbers they came out was that nearly 60% of Irish people admit that they've never attended a live women's sporting event in the country. Uh, Almost half 
say that men's sport is generally better to watch and generally of those who are going more men are going to watch women's sport than women are going to watch anything in this Adele that has surprised you? Um, not really, no. And look, I'm not the best person to ask about this because I'm equal opportunities not attending either men <laughs> or women's sporting events. But um, I think it's a kind of chicken and egg situation. You know, people say, oh, it's it's not as good to watch female sport as male sport. I mean, I, I don't think that's true. If you look at what golf are doing for female golf, like that's kind of, it seems to be aired as much as male um, tournaments. But I, I think if there was more investment and if the the sports were shown more on television, more people would take an interest and then would that be interested in going to see the events live. But I think because it's not um, screened as much as the male sports and they don't have as much investment, it all feeds into the fact that people are less likely to go and see those um, events. I guess we've seen in with the 20 by 20 movement over recent years and then particularly the success of the women's football team in qualifying for the World Cup that when people can see it and when there is a little bit of success Irish people will always row in behind. Absolutely and I think you know that that's the the importance of research like this uh, it was commissioned by the Ladies Football National League uh, and Little as well in advance of the league starting up again. I think it's useful for us to have a marker. I think if we had seen these, these figures maybe a couple of years ago I'm sure they would have mm. been um you know more stark than than these ones um, I think Adele is absolutely right I think the more that you can see the sports being screened on television I think what's really great now when, when I'm listening to the radio in the morning and the sports bulletins come on often ladies uh, and women's sport is you know top of the bulletin when there's um, you know success or, or important news happening and like that was not the case when I was growing up so I think you know things can only get better um, and I, I, I think you know as you say you know last year the record being set for, for ladies soccer in terms of attendance at a game and things like that the, the the trajectory seems to be upwards and along may it continue I think. I think it's important as well when we look at some of these numbers and questions about which they prefer to watch or which is more skillful. We do have to remember that women's sport is generally 50 years behind men's sports so there wasn't a Irish women's soccer team until 50 years ago and even then had little or no resources there was very little depth now you look at the amount of young girls who are playing soccer, GEA, every sport that they're going to get better at a rate of knots and we see that already that the skill levels are rising consistently and also in terms of it being exciting you can get a terrible Premier League game yeah, 100%, any game yeah. of any sport oh God, can be bad yes. or you can get a brilliant <laughs> game in the Women's National League so if you have a chance to go I would say go and there's probably also a definitely Adele, a traditional thing when you look at the fact there's more men going to women's games than women that traditionally it was men who went off at the weekend to watch a match yeah, and I was quite surprised to see that um, the number of women attending live sporting events was actually um, quite high. I think, was it something like 43%? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Of, of of the population that actually attends, but but yeah, I, I think those traditional things surely come into it, and even just the fact that football was traditionally considered a male sport of, of of male interest, you know, not something that would even interest women. But obviously, that's clearly not the case. And sure, look, if you look at something like tennis, and people say they prefer to watch men, like the women's tennis game is absolutely intense and spectacular. And I really wish they would up the length of those games, um, you know, from two sets to three. Uh, you know, it's it's so much more enjoyable when they go on a little bit longer. But uh, and I don't think that any of the female athletes would not be able to, you know, to compete at that level. Of course, they are. 
it probably links in with the next story we wanted to cover, which has, I think, grimmed an awful lot of people out, which is Joey Barton and his comments in recent weeks. I'm going to try and stay calm for this one, okay? <laughs> uh, so Joey Barton, who you know had a relatively successful uh, footballing career, played for England once, has gone into management and suddenly out of nowhere has gone in this sort of relentless tirade against female pundits as part of a new podcast where he is going to be a truth teller in the UK and has personally got gone to town uh, a very personal nature on several mm. female pundits. Uh, sports minister in the UK, Stuart Andrew says, not acceptable. Dangerous comments that open the floodgates for abuse. We have seen a little bit of a pushback over the last couple of weeks in and that Gary Neville has come out and been yeah. very critical. ITV have come out and defended their pundits, but it hasn't put off Joey Barton because literally every time I go online, Joey Barton is there front and centre. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to put him off because all he's looking for is attention and as long as people are giving it to him, he's going to relish in it. Um, you know, I think it's really important that people like Gary Neville and ITV have pushed back. I think it's really important to challenge kind of these types of statements. It goes to show that misogyny is still alive at well in terms of sport and, and on, online as well. We know that women experience, you know, much more abuse on platforms like X than, than their male counterparts in no matter what profession they're pursuing. Um, you know, whether it's sports commentary or, or politics or whatever. So I think it's really good to see the, the comments challenged. Um, I think I always worry a little bit about giving attention to people who are seeking it because that only kind of, you know, serves to kind of continue their, their um, you know, activity. And, and I think for me, you know, he's looking for attention for his podcast and he certainly got it. I think it must be exhausting for women to have to put up with in every walk of life that just when a white man in middle age decides he's going to set up a podcast, they have to put up with his rants to to for you know him him promoting his podcast, you know. Yeah, Adele, I, I, it, it did take a while for any sort of a high profile figure to bite back on Joey Barton, and, and I do wonder if that was a bit of well, don't give him oxygen. But actually, it got to the stage where I think everyone felt someone's just got to step in here. Now it has he hasn't relented. In fact, he's emboldened by the fact that he's getting more and more attention on this, and with the way that X has gone now. I think that's the way that platform is developing. Yeah, it's it's really disappointing and I am glad that um, people like Gary Neville and ITV came out to um, to condemn his comments. I think that was important um, even though it may have given more attention to them but he's got something like what is it 2.7 million followers mm. on, on X and what really shocked me about um, about Barton was how young he is, um, relatively speaking. He's 41 and it just seems like such an archaic kind of viewpoint for a man of his generation to hold. Now, I know there are lots of men younger than him who are influenced by Andrew Tate and other influencers who have very misogynistic views, but I was just quite surprised that, you know, a man of his generation would uh, you know, feel it's okay to hold views like this. And also the the sheer irrationality of the argument mm. like if you're not a male you can't comment on male football that, that, that's like saying I wonder does he believe um, can men be gynecologists then it's just it's so <laughs> irrational it's just I don't like, think he's commented on that <laughs> well yeah. I'd love to hear his thoughts on it <laughs> yeah look, as I said he, you know, he had a good career but he also has a very yeah. violent past and has been in lots of trouble with the law throughout his career as well and like, it's interesting you mentioned Andrew Tate Adele in that it, it did strike me, and I'm one of those who has followed Joey Barton, and he'd be on and off Twitter, and he'd give us opinion on football and things, that this did 
and does feel like a very clear and conscious effort on his part and the people around him and the podcast that they're trying to create to position themselves as that Andrew Tate-style voice. Like, it's very cynical and it's very openly and... uh, very transparent it feels in what he's trying to do. Yeah, it's a dog whistle to, to you know come and listen to my podcast. Mm. Essentially, you know, I, I, like I, I do think we've talked about this before. We've talked about kind of the, the challenges in terms of young men who are not maybe seeing role models in other places, feeling lost, and then kind of gravitating towards these people like Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, who who they feel that they can maybe relate to in some sort of way, and they're preying on their kind of vulnerabilities. But I think what's really welcome about this incident is that it has been men who've been calling it out. It hasn't just been left to to women to respond and challenge. And I think, to be honest, men calling this type of behaviour out is the only way we're going to actually challenge uh, and see an end to it, uh, if that's even possible. We need to take a break, but if we think we have it tough in Ireland, uh, the Scottish have it far worse (laughs) when it comes to the English taking credit for things, as Margaret and Roscommon is pointing out. Andy Murray, always Scottish, till he won Wimbledon. Then he was British, and he's probably back been Scottish again right now. Quick break, and we're back with more on The Week Trending with Ian Power and Adele Coffey. You're welcome back. It is The Last Word. It is The Week Trending. Ian Power and Adele Coffey alongside me, 87 102 uh, Adele, Taylor Swift, the Swifties, are very annoyed with The New York Times, and uh, you'd have to say rightly so. What's happened? Yeah, so the New York Times ran a huge, absolutely enormous 5,000 word opinion piece, which was pretty much a thesis on um, Taylor Swift by this woman called Anna Marks, who essentially went through all Taylor's songs and albums and outfits and uh, like jewellery and looked for sort of signifiers um, that could suggest that she is either gay or bi. Um, And it just, you know, it just seemed like a really sort of baffling thing to do. Um, Obviously, this uh, writer would really like if Taylor Swift was gay or bi and would come out um, about it if she is. But it's kind of, it's so, it just felt sort of unethical considering that Swift has said, um, in a direct quote, she said, she, you know, she's kind of embracing her allyship of the LGBTQ plus community. And she said, I didn't realise until recently that I could advocate for a community that I'm not a part of. So I think you have to take the woman at her word. And as the most powerful pop star in the world, probably on a par with Beyonce, um, I feel like she'd probably be able to um, find the words to tell her adoring fans that she is gay or bi if she happened to be that. Uh, or you'd hope that she'd feel comfortable. But also, like, does she have to? Should she have to announce? And that's always been a big um, point of contention, hasn't it, um, amongst celebrities, sports people, you know, if they don't want to talk about their sexuality, they shouldn't have to. If they only want to address their sexuality in their lyrics or in their wardrobe, that's their right. But um, what this piece was doing was kind of speculating and saying this, like at one point there was a line where uh, the writer said something like, um, she uses the word you instead of the word her and she should have used her because her rhymes with the previous word picture and it just seemed like a kind of desperate attempt to claim um, Taylor Swift's sexuality and I feel like is there is there a need to do that? Now maybe maybe the, maybe Taylor Swift um, maybe she knows more than we do and she's um, you know trying to force the issue but 
you know, that's kind of pretty grim too, isn't it? Like it's along the lines mm. of outing people. It does feel in that this is the most tenuously put together article because they know that it'll get a reaction from Taylor Swift yep. fans. So it seems to be based around a country music singer called, is it Shelley, Shelley. Wright or Kelly Wright? Yeah. yeah. Who um, didn't come out because she felt in country music, she said, it's like the military, don't ask, don't tell. But even she has come out say, saying, why'd you put my name in this? Yeah. Nothing to do with me. Drag me and that because it. Taylor Swift from Nashville, from the country background, that's the reason yeah. why she won't come out. Yeah, I mean, this is the definition of broadsheet clickbait, to be honest, and I tried to avoid reading it all week, but obviously had to because we were going to be talking about it today, and I'm quite resented, to be honest, because it's like one of those college essays where you have a word count to fill, and you have to fill it at all costs. <laughs> it was so long. Like, it's so long, and it, you know, and also the writing is tawdry in, in many different places um, from, from my perspective. I think there's kind of really no circumstance where I think it's okay to openly speculate on a person's sexuality, no matter how high profile they are. But this isn't the first time. This a similar hit job on Harry Styles. Uh, written by the same person, you know, uh, so uh, and also in the New York Times, so you'd have to wonder what's going on in the op-ed uh, editorial team there, but like, f- for me, you know, absolutely explore homophobia in a genre in terms of whether it's country music or or pop and, and whether or not, you know, people are still not able to come out for fear of commercial, uh, you know, hindrance or whatever. Absolutely, you know, debate the, the whether or not, you know, we need to be coming out uh, in, in 2024. Is that still something that society should be subjecting um, LGBT people to? Um, but as a gay person, to be honest, I just kind of really felt that uh, this was slightly erring on the side of, I know the writer identifies as queer themselves, but like slightly erred on the side of homophobic in, in man different places to me because you know tawdry writing like uh, you know shadowy solitary recesses of the cl- closet accuses Taylor Swift of lying by omission or otherwise um, mm. being reluctant to kind of confess herself guilty you know a- and kind of really at the end of the piece as long as it took me to get there you know talking about <laughs> what do we owe each other and the writer says visibility and to be honest I actually say we don't owe each other anything in this space I think Agreed. you know f- for me like you have to if, if, if questioning your sexuality is something that you're doing you know only when you are good and ready to come out is the time that you should share and, and, and I use the word should there in, in advisedly because you know you don't have to if you don't want to um, and, and, and really to me like where there's a world where homophobia exists no wonder people would be reticent to share that with the world Something I suspect in the New York Times you were very eager to read <laughs> was their 52 places to go list for 2020. Uh, why 52? And why is Waterford on the list? 52, maybe one for every week. Not that I doubt you'd be jetting around the world at that pace. But yeah, uh, Waterford's on the list. And as a water fellow, as a Waterfordian and a data man, I'm, I'm delighted. It's been blowing up the group chats all week. Everybody delighted to see it mentioned for many reasons. And like I must say, like the public realm in Waterford is spectacular in terms of the Viking triangle, you've got kind of the Greenway um, I'm going to actually do it tomorrow with some friends, we're going down to Dungarvan uh, they mention uh, the newly renovated Mount Congreve Estate where I grew up nearby um, and it's stunning, it's gorgeous so like, I mean, I think it's absolutely warranted and it comes hot on the heels of last year, um, Waterford was named the best place to live in Ireland by the Irish Times as well so I think the, the New York Times are potentially paying attention to that. There's enough too much of an infomercial for Waterford, there are other <laughs> great places impressed. other great places in Ireland including the Connor Pass, Adele which, is it going to go into public ownership? 
Well, it's all like this is more kind of speculated upon than Taylor Swift's sexuality at this stage. But um, it looks like uh, it's going to go into um, public ownership from uh, what we can glean from uh, reports on it. So, so yeah, it seems like there's two different parcels of land as they're referred to. Um, one is about uh, fourteen hundred acres, I think, and the other is a smaller one. But um, there had been some sort of um, objections to it. Um, because um, one of the Healy Rays was saying that it's, you know, the money would be better spent on, um, you know, housing, obviously, in this housing crisis. But um, but it looks like it is going to come into state ownership. And it's, um, it's, it's something that um, <laughs> a local uh, councillor, um, Brendan Fitzgerald, um, told Kerry Radio, he said, or Radio Kerry, he said, we lost fungi, but we will have gained a <laughs> national park. <laughs> so hopefully it will fall into state ownership. But um, as Healy Ray said, you know, even if this was bought by a private owner, there'd be no chance of it being developed. Um Obviously, nobody would get planning permission for such a, well, you'd hope nobody would. Nothing's impossible. You'd hope nobody would get planning permission for such an area of natural beauty. But um, but it would it would be slightly more comfortable, I think, for all involved if it was in state ownership rather than private ownership. The, the big, uh, the 1,400 acres is currently owned by an American. I think that's going for sale for about 10 million. And the other one is for sale for... Um, what I lost at uh, 1.5 million I think was the smaller uh, parcel of land. We do have a lot of messages coming in saying the English taking credit for things the English claiming things that aren't theirs uh, Ian we should maybe look a little bit closer to home at times as well. What's this story about African princesses appealing to President Higgins to return their family heirlooms? Yeah, this is a really interesting story and it's, you know, there's a trend obviously now in terms of uh, you know, colonial uh, or, you know, countries and and, uh, countries like our own who have come into possession of different artefacts that um, countries for whom they originated in are asking for them back. We had the case last year of the Egyptian mummy and sarcophagus in UCC was was given back to Egypt um, and now two African princes have appealed directly to President Michael D. Higgins to help get back a 150-year-old family heirloom that was looted um, from their ancestor in South Africa. Um, it's pronounced Kosa, uh, the 19th century chief uh, leader, uh, Makoma's sacred warrior stick. Um, it was taken to Ireland after his death um, on Robben Island by Captain French McDermott in 1873, and it's been in storage in the National Museum of Ireland since 1880 without any knowledge of the descendants. But actually two of the princesses, the Princess Royals, Nisidisa Makoma and um, Mam Chwawe, uh, they have come to Ireland and actually had a private viewing um, at the museum in Collins Barracks on Tuesday. Um, and, and really, it sounds like quite an emotional thing for them to be able to actually see and touch a family heirloom that they had assumed had been lost. They'd seen it in pictures um, and now they're asking for it back. And I think it's completely understandable that they would. And there is an expert committee on the restitution of historically and culturally sensitive objects uh, that met for the first time back in December under Catherine Martin, the minister. So you'd assume there'll be a decision on that and that in all likelihood that yeah, we'll give it back. Crossed, yeah. All right, we've got to leave it there. Uh, Ian Power, Adele Coffey, thank you very much for coming in. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-